you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, greetings. I trust you are one of the growing number who does love your work. If you need to have a tune-up on that, stay with us. We're going to spend the next few minutes talking about how to find work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. doesn't have to be a compromise. You can have it all. You really can. Even in this economy, yes, even in this recession, what's happening in Wall Street and Washington, D.C. has very little to do with your success on a day-by-day basis. We're going to be talking about that and more. This is Dan Meller, your host on the 48 Days Online radio show, where each week we take a few minutes here to look at your work. You know, we know work is not just an exchange of time for a paycheck. If that's all it is to you, you're missing out on a whole lot of the benefits of what we're going to provide. It's our best opportunity to live out our calling, create the legacy we want to live behind. Yes, work can do that. Life is too short to spend the major part of our time working only in exchange for a paycheck. Somebody was asking me today about my work, how I framed everything I do in the anticipation of being paid in some way for it. And I said, I really don't do that. You know, money shows up in unexpected ways. And now at this point, I've got some things in motion, but I don't sit down to write thinking, okay, how many of this particular book or document or audio or whatever, can I sell thus shaping that content to try to somehow, you know, manipulate or, I mean, that's not how it's done. I mean, ultimately you want to get to the point where you work because you enjoy the work you're doing. Yes. You have to be strategic about structuring how money comes in and money should come in in big quantities. You want what uh, my buddy Dave Ramsey calls a big shovel. And if you know how to leverage your intellectual expertise, leverage what you know, you ought to be able to create a big shovel. We talk about how to do that a whole lot more. Here's some of the things we're going to be talking about in this show. I've got beware of being busy. I'm going to talk about why that's a challenge. A lot of people are busy and not really getting done what needs to be done well here's a question from our listener says should i tell potential employers that three years ago i had brain cancer all right that's one of the ones we'll be discussing dan could i ever catch up to our hundred thirty thousand dollar income if i go back and get an accelerated nursing degree now that one we're going to really unpack a little bit because there's some mathematics involved in that that are applicable to situations that many of you are going through so we're going we're gonna to look at what's the math if you have what is called an opportunity cost to go back and get an advanced degree. How much time does it take to catch up? And I'll give you some examples from my own work as well, how I look at things. Dan, I need help discovering my passion, something that gets me up in the morning. Dan, I do not want to go back to a corporate position. Should I hire a coach? Dan, how can I get radio program directors to air my weekly two-minute segments on health, fitness, and nutrition? And one will, I hope we get to this one, Dan. How can I use my master's in theology if I apply for secular jobs? Y'all keep throwing me those zingers in there, these ones that deal with, well, with spiritual issues, and I certainly welcome those, but uh, they are zingers in that the answers tend not to be cookie cutter 
or responses, but hopefully I can give you some things at least to make you thoughtful about those kind of issues. And that's certainly a good one. Well, here's a quotation for the week. And this comes from Thomas Edison, who said, being busy does not always mean real work. The object of all work is production or accomplishment. And to either of these ends, there must be forethought, system, planning, intelligence, and honest purpose, as well as perspiration. Seeming to do is not doing. You know, I love the concept. Being busy does not always mean real work. What one group of people, and I'm going to pick on them here for a minute, one group of people who are notorious for confusing activity with accomplishment are salespeople. I mean, salespeople, by virtue of what they do, and to be good, usually are good at creating relationships. And so uh, what do people who are good at creating relationships do? They talk and talk and talk. A lot of times the opportunity for a sale disappeared an hour ago, and they're still talking. And they turn what should have been a 20-minute sales call into a a two-hour jabbering session BS section, and then try to justify it as they were really working hard. No, probably not. You probably missed your window of opportunity to close the sale. In fact, you might have killed any opportunity you had by sticking around too long because the other person may have been thinking about all the time they were spending and end up resenting the fact that you were there and took up that much time. You ought to be intentional about how you do a sales presentation. I, at one time years ago, was doing a a sales presentation. It was a little advertising concept. I'd walk in cold, unannounced, asked to speak to the owner and do a three-minute presentation. 67% of the time, I'd walk out with a check in my hand. But I intended for that to be a three-minute presentation. I was working the numbers. I would have at the beginning of the day 15 prime candidates. They didn't know I was coming. And I know that just walking in to 15 places, I'm not always going to catch the owner there where I can talk to him or her. But my goal was to make eight presentations in the course of a day. Eight. If out of that I was closing 67%, which I was, that meant I was getting four to five sales a day. And in doing that, I could make four or $5,000 a week, which was my goal. I didn't want to turn a three-minute presentation into a 30-minute visitation. I wanted to get in there, make my presentation, and get out of there. I was the one watching the clock, wanting to get out. But that worked well. So beware of being busy. Hey, we'll move on. I'll get off my high horse on that. Let's go to some questions. Tom from Rice Lake, Wisconsin says, I love the 48 Days community. Using tools that have cost me little or nothing, I have gone from a trucker with a dream and a call to a trucker with a website and podcast ministry. The Jesus Freak Trucker podcast has a long way to go, but it's off to a good start. Hey, congratulations on that, Tom. That sounds awesome. Tom says, on to my question, I know I have to be careful about music and my podcast. Right now, I use homemade 12-bar blues for intro and exit. But what about recitations? Someone told me that the spoken word can be used without royalties. Trucking has its own genre, and recitations were a big part of that. Can I play shortcuts from some of these without running afoul with the music industry? Well, the, the issue really is no different for recitations or music. I mean, recitations are exactly the same. If something is a spoken word, it has the same copyright protection as something that is in music. Now, the, the, the real issue here is this is a real emerging area of use. At the beginning of my show, when you, you hear what I play there, okay? You hear the taking care of business. That, that's the old Bachman Turner work? Overdrive song. 
taking care of business. I have a license to use that from Sony. Now, that was not easy to get. There was nearly, really no prototype or precedent set for that. And it took me four months of asking questions and pushing, 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 going with attorneys from Los Angeles to New York to get them to come up with some kind of a simple little agreement to let me use 38 seconds of that. But I wanted to push because so many of you have questions about that. So technically, yes, that's a licensing issue. However, you also hear me play a lot of other things during the course of the podcast here. If I pull this up and I'm playing this, I have not gone to the work to go back and try to get, let's see, who who is this? Is this Bare Naked Ladies? I think it is. I think that's what the name of the group was, Bare Naked Ladies, if I had a million dollars. I haven't gone back to try to figure out who the publisher is and get the permission to play, you know, 10 seconds of that once in a while on here. here. Here's the deal, really, on that. It's a gray area. Technically, there is royalty and licensing issues at stake here. But the bottom line is, it's not big enough that the radio comp- or that the uh, publishing companies want to mess with it. As an example, this morning I did, uh, d- did the devotions. Jared and my son and I did the devotions for the Dave Ramsey organization based on the concepts in our new book, Wisdom Meets Passion, which I'll be talking about more. That was recorded. If somebody takes a segment of that and uses it in their podcast to illustrate a point that we made I really don't want them coming and knocking on my door and saying, is this okay? You know, or can I pay you $2.50? Just do it. It's just additional exposure for us. Radio executives feel the same way about the little things that I insert in my show that I'm using all the time, you know, that I think illustrate different kind of concepts that are so common to the workplace. You know, I love this one. Love you too. I use this one frequently. The radio executives don't want to be bothered with thousands and thousands of us out here doing podcasts who are going to use, you know, eight seconds of a song. It it just doesn't make economic sense for them to invest the time to figure out something that's going to involve very, very little dollars. Now, I think over time that's going to change. I think over time these things will become clearer issues and there'll be precedents set for it. So, my encouragement in this particular situation is if you're using them in your podcast, just go ahead and do it. Now I'm assuming you're not using something that's 30 minutes long that you're replaying, but even there, I mean, I find things, you know, we do of course, Google analytics and all that and track things where my name in 48 days pop up. And there's a lot of stuff out there that we certainly haven't known about or given permission for. And again, it's, I, we just consider it additional marketing exposure. The other thing is, in a podcast, chances are that's free to everybody. If you're not generating income from it, then it really is even a more gray area. I mean, if you grab an audio from somebody, you package it, and you're selling it for $9.95, you know, that that's a little more push toward you need to work out some kind of agreement to be able to do that. But if it's just a free podcast, like I assume you're talking about, right now, it's the wild, wild west. Just do it, hold your head high, do it with class, and uh, don't worry too much about those fine details. Well, Jeff says, I'm currently seeking a new job. About three years ago, I was diagnosed with brain cancer. 
I had the brain tumor removed and went through 12 months of chemotherapy, physical speech, and cognitive therapy. I am now cancer-free. My question is, should I give this information to potential employers if I'm not directly asked? There are negatives and positives to the situation, he says. I know that it could increase their insurance cost and that I'm more likely to find cancer somewhere else in my body than most other people. I see it as a positive that I've overcome this and I'm able to perform as a professional in my field while being eligible for permanent disability. I feel this is a testament to my character and work ethic. All right, let me just coattail on that, Jeff. As a testament to your character and work ethic, I think you need to tell them. This is too big of an issue to just bury it, try to skirt the issue and then have something show up and they discover, oh my gosh, this guy had a brain tumor. That's a major issue. It's a major part of who you are and what your future is likely to be. I mean, certainly we hope and pray that it never comes back, but it's too big of an issue to just push under the rug and ignore in as you uh, deal with potential employers. Now, if you're doing freelance work or you're a consultant or an entrepreneur or any of those other kinds of work, it's not an issue at all. Certainly, you don't need to share it there. But if you're going to go under somebody's benefit plan, be considered an employee where you're going to get a W-2 at the end of the year. Yep, I would say you need to tell them. Well, Lee from Kansas City says, Dan, my wife and I are 28 with a one child currently. Now, this is a this is a rather lengthy my response is rather lengthy to this. So let me just give you the setup here and then I'm going to work you through some mathematical details to help us all understand how to look at this. My wife and I are 28 with one child currently one and a half years old, no debt besides our mortgage. I've always traveled my career and I'd like to reduce my overnight travel for family reasons. I've had an interest in the medical field. However, I've determined med school is too expensive and too much time to complete. Is it foolish to consider going through a one-year accelerated nursing program while my wife continues working full-time and would have to do so for a number of years before she could financially stay at home with the children? Or should I keep doing what I am right now and allow her to stay home with the kids? If I pursue nursing, the nursing route, I would plan on doing a DNP. Now, that's, a DNP is a Doctor of Nursing Practitioner degree later on to increase salary. Our combined gross income now is 130000 My overnight travel is 70%. Thanks. Now, Lee, th- there are too many variables here to give precise answers. So I'm going to have to give some general answers, not knowing all the rest of the pieces of your particular situation. If your motivation is just to hit a financial goal, then I'd suggest that you stay away from medicine altogether. If your desire is just to increase your income, I wouldn't even go the medical route. I mean, if you're traveling and making decent money, I would guess you're in sales and sales skills are the easiest and most transferable skills you could possibly have. Just find something you're passionate about. Be a great salesman. And I just had lunch the other day with a, with an old friend who is in sales. That's all. That's what he does. He's not an entrepreneur. He doesn't have his own business, but he's in sales. Yeah, he's driving a brand new, gorgeous car. He just makes sales calls. He's already closed a million dollars in business this year, which gives him a very, very healthy uh, commission. Uh, the kind of income most people dream of puts him in the top, you know, 3% of income earners probably. And he's a sales guy. There's nothing wrong with that at all. I mean, nothing wrong with that at all. If, however, now if, if you've always dreamed of being in the medical field, then make a plan to be the best you can be there. Don't deprive yourself of that at 28 years old thinking you've missed your opportunity. 
And you suggest a one-year program and then the DNP after that, which, you know, it's probably going to require, I assume, two more years. You're only 28 years old. If you went to medical school, you'd only be, you know, 32 when you finish. So don't say something takes too much time when you're only 28 years old. I mean, the next four years will go by in the blink of an eye, regardless of what you do. If you use that time for focused study to put you in a dramatically different place by the time you're 32, my gosh, then you can enjoy the next 40 years doing what you want to do as a result of that tiny investment of time, energy, and money now. Now, here's the deal. A, a DNP, a nurse practitioner with a doctorate degree connected with that, the average salary for that, now let's just, I'm going to frame this, and again, it may be a little artificial, but I'm going to say three years to ultimately get your DNP, four years to get through medical school. The average salary for a DNP is sixty-nine dollars to $87,000 a year. The average salary of a physician who is just in general family practice in the United States is $175,956. Now, let's say that the opportunity cost of one more year, so instead of a DNP, you get an MD, so one more year, let's say that it's going to, you lose the income of $80,000 that you could get with a DNP, and let's just say that we add that much back in for tuition and living expenses. So the opportunity cost of that year then is $160,000. You're spending the money for tuition and living expense, and you're losing the income, so combined, there's the opportunity cost, and that's how I like to look at these things. But then the first year out after that, you make 175000 So you take the 80000 you would have been making as a DNP out of that, and you've recovered $95,000 of that 160000 in opportunity cost, leaving $65,000. Now, I know it's probably hard just in an auditory fashion to follow my figures here, but just bear with me. I'll, I'll make the point anyway. The second year, you cover both the remaining $65,000 of the opportunity cost, regain the entire $80,000 you would have been making as a DNP, and you end up $30,000 ahead. So it'd take about 20 months to be gaining net ground. And if we play that out, then from the time you're 34, let's say, and you work until you're 60, you're going to be roughly $2.5 million ahead just in raw salary. I mean, this you overtake the opportunity costs so quickly because of the big disparity between potential incomes here that if you have any desire at all to go to med school, my encouragement would be go to med school. You're only talking about a little bit of time difference and it's going to give you that really big shovel as compared to a teaspoon. Now here's how I look at this and things I do. Now this is of course an example for me. Let's say that I am offered $50,000 advance for a book. And let's say that I get a typical author's royalty of $1.50 a book. So it's going to require, um, would that be 33,000 book sales to break even where I would start getting a royalty. Now, 30,000 book sales is not chump change. Most publishers are going to consider $30,000 a really solid hit with a book. Uh, personally, I, I would be pretty disappointed at that, but I've had a little history in this, but let's just stick with this. 30,000 would break even on that advance. And then the author would start getting a royalty. If the book sells 50,000 copies total over the life of the book, I would get a total then of $75,000. Let's say that I took a risk with no advance. I told the publisher, oh, I don't want an advance, but I want 
$3 per book rather than that $1.50. Now, this is always based on percentages of the net, but we'll, we'll just use simple figures here for sake of illustration. And this is not unrealistic at all. So let's say that you say, I don't want any advance. You don't have to give me money in advance. I'm going to be in the game with this. I'll just get $3 a book. So if the book sells, you know, 10,000 copies, you get, you know, $30,000 and you would have been, you end the losing end. But let's say again, that the book ends up selling 50,000 copies in that scenario. I, as the author, would actually end up with $150,000 rather than the $75,000 that came with a nice advance. I mean, I look at every project like this. I play it out. Where do I want to be three years from now? And that's what you need to do in this. Play out where you want to be three years from now. And if by getting a medical degree or an advanced degree of any kind, it would put you so far ahead income potential wise, then by all means, you know, do that. There, there's a whole lot of ways to skin a cat and it, follow your heart though first in doing what you want to do. Don't just go to school because you think it gives you a degree that'll give you higher income potential. I know salespeople, you know, that make a million dollars a year. I don't know many doctors that make a million dollars a year when it's all said and done. So you've already got the skills to make significant income if that is your goal. But if your goal is to be involved in medicine, then don't ignore that either. Well, you're listening to Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online radio show, where we take your questions, break them down, try to identify the principles that will help all of us go to higher levels of success. We welcome your questions. If you'd like to submit one, just go to the 48days.com site, click on the podcast link, and you'll see a nice little box jump up there where you can submit your question. I'd be happy to consider that for an upcoming show. Let's go back to the questions. Chris from Louisville says, I need help discovering my passion, something that gets me up in the morning. I have several ideas I think I would enjoy, but nothing seems to make me pull the proverbial trigger. I wrote a book five years ago, but it still hasn't been published. I like my current job, but don't love it. When my wife asked me what I want to do with my life, I very sincerely shrugged my shoulders and tell her I have no clue. I have several ideas for jobs I think I would enjoy and businesses I would like to start, but find myself stuck somewhere in between analysis, paralysis, and general apathy, lack of direction, passion, and confidence. Wow. It's a mouthful. I'm stuck in the rat race, but I don't know what it'll take to help me get out help. Well, Chris, well, you, you are in a, in a non advantageous position, but you're in the driver's seat. You can change this really quickly. There's a couple things in what you write here that uh, intrigued me. I wrote a book five years ago, but it still hasn't been published. Why is that? I mean, what, what's up with that? If you wrote a book five years ago, what does that mean? It hasn't been published. Does that mean that Random House hasn't knocked on your door? I mean, that may not happen. But if that hasn't happened and you thought it has had something of value, why didn't you publish it? I mean, you get go to Create Space on Am, uh, Division of Amazon, get your book in there so it's immediately available to the entire Amazon audience. Do some things, write some blogs, do some interviews, whatever it is you want to do to help drive traffic there and sell some copies. Now here's the deal. I mean, we just had a writer's conference here just a couple weeks ago, had a lot of happy wannabe writers here and some have already published and wanted to figure out how to make money with what they have. You don't have to wait on anything. The obstacles have been removed in today's environment. 
when I started with 48 Days to the Work You Love, I didn't even look for a publisher. I didn't even have it in my site. I just started providing what people were asking for. And we sold over $2 million worth of that in a three ring binder with a couple little CDs in there. Then publishers started showing up. So get in the game and don't for a minute think that, well, if you self publish, then you're going to dilute the value of it, you know, saturate the audience and no publisher will be interested in you. That is absolutely not true. Matt Bauer, my publisher with Thomas Nelson, spoke at our recent Right to the Bank conference, and he addressed that directly. He said they look for that. They look for authors who have jumped in the game, and if it's an unknown author, they would much rather see an author who had sold 2,000 copies. I mean, just a little bit. 2,000 copies of his own book makes you much more marketable and desirable to have discussions with a publisher than somebody who's done zero who just has a manuscript that they alone think is good. So do that. Now, as far as finding your passion, you know, let me ask you this. I mean, right now, what is your life saying to the world? Sometimes I have people had a gal one time. She said she thinks she's living her life too small. And I thought that's a great phrase. She's living her life too small. And sometimes, you know, we just allow so many little meaningless tasks creep in. There's no room left for the things that make our heart sing. Let me ask you this in the last month, can you name three things you did just to help someone out with no expectation of payback in the last month? Tell me the titles of books you read or listened to that enlightened your spirit, confidence, knowledge, and wisdom. How many hours did you spend in quiet contemplation? What are two or three things you did just this last month that you never did before? Tell me about the concerts, art exhibits, seminars, and workshops that you attended. What are two or three things you did to strengthen the relationships that mean the most to you? If you can answer those questions, I can help you shape what your passion is. If you can't answer those questions, you have blanks for those. Chances are you're living your life too small. Now, my son Jared and I, you know, got this new book, Wisdom Meets Passion. I run into people all the time. Dan, I don't know what passion is. Don't have any passion. Well, passion is not discovered by sitting on a rock or going somewhere and just hoping you stumble onto it. Passion is discovered while you are fully engaged in this thing we call life. So reading books you've never read before, going some, go to a country you've never been to before. Go to a workshop or seminar. You may not have a particular interest in it. Go anyway. Read three books. Those are the things that help you see little glimpses of what your passion connects with. It's in that that we then are able to define, wow, this is something that I can now develop. Passion doesn't come to us full blown. Passion comes to us as little tidbits. And then once we develop more energy and time in that particular area, we can discover if it's something that's really going to go full blown or if it was just a passing fancy. So get engaged in things that take you outside the typical, boring, mediocre routine that you may have in life right now. And you'll discover, it'll help you uncover what your passion is. Great question. And obviously I love to talk about that particular thing as we're finding a whole lot of people who don't know what their passion is. Incidentally, you know, when we talk about wisdom meets passion, and then the subtitle of the book is when generations collide and collaborate. It's not, 
implying that you have passion when you're young and then when you get old you lose that and it turns into wisdom not at all i mean that would be ludicrous passion by itself can be very dangerous and it can misdirect you and we certainly see that we want somebody who's 22 years old who's very passionate about something to have wisdom that goes along with it and there's no reason they can't have that wisdom and passion go together no matter where you are in the continuum of age and there's nothing sadder more pathetic than somebody who's old and has wisdom but no passion i mean geez that's not a happy life nobody wants that so we want you to discover your wisdom and passion at any given time incidentally we've got a new group on 48days.net and it's titled wisdom meets passion just lucas savage started that group i'd love for you to jump in there wisdom meets passion group of course 48days.net our free social networking community I would expect any of you who are serious about this process of finding or creating work you love um, to be involved in that group anyway, but get involved in the Wisdom Meets Passion group. We're going to be introducing some things in the next couple of weeks to that group, some inside track, special worksheets and resources just to that group, plus some exciting new things that will give you access to um, books that others are not going to have access to through traditional resources. So jump in the Wisdom Meets Passion group in 48days.net. Let me go on here. Dave says, Dan, I'm 50 years old and a sole breadwinner for my family. I've struggled for a long time with a lack of passion in my work, but rose to the level of a senior executive for a small bank working under contract. Well, the board informed me this week that it will not be renewed, but I have a three-month severance with full pay and benefits. So I'm at a crossroads with plenty of time for now on my hands to explore options. I've always wanted to be a solopreneur, but never had the courage to pursue it. I would rather cobble together income streams like you share in your 48 low cost business ideas while I find permanent work, but my wife is nervous. I do not want to go back to corporate. Should I hire a coach? Thanks. Well, use this time. I mean, what a gift to be given three months. Use that time to create a plan. If you can create a plan where on paper you see it duplicating the income you need, then test your idea. But now here's how I would break that time down. Don't just piddle away 90 days. Take 30 days, no more than one month to create your plan. Then you have one month to test your ideas. Get in the game. See if some of these ideas are really going to produce income. If they produce as you expect, you're on your way, rock and roll. If they don't, then use the remaining month to do a great job search. And find the next position for yourself. And yes, a coach should be able to help you create that plan. If you go to the coaching link at 48days.com, fill out that quick little questionnaire there. I mean, my daughter reviews those. My daughter actually reviews those. And she can match you up with a coach, be that me or someone else, who, depending on who she thinks is a good match, to help you accomplish what you want to accomplish. That's a great time in a transition like that to get a coach to help you see what perhaps you can't see and help you identify some things that you maybe have not had a lot of experience with. But when you say you've always wanted to be a sole printer but never had the courage to pursue it, don't, 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 forever, don't end up 65 years old with that same regret. I mean, the biggest regret of people who we know are approaching death is I wish I'd had the courage to live a life authentic to myself rather than the expectations of others. Now, this is not about being selfish or egotistical. It's about being authentic, about releasing the very best that God has put in you. That's what you want to do. That's where you see an explosion of energy, optimism, 
boldness, confidence, and money. So if you have that desire, don't try to push that under the carpet, but experiment with it in this great window of opportunity that you've been given where you can test your idea out before you have to really launch. Sam from Alabama says, Dan, I produce and host a weekly two-minute segment for a local TV station on health, fitness, and nutrition. They air during the station's newscast. I retain the redistribution rights to these segments. My goal is to locate affiliates in several other TV markets that I could syndicate this content to. The weekly pieces are very well produced and have been well received within the market that they currently air in, but I'm a little bit at a loss on how to add new stations. I'm certain that if I could get a foot in the door to meet with news directors throughout the country that I could demonstrate to them that my news segments would be valuable addition to their newscast and would be embraced by their viewers. Any tips on how I could begin to add new affiliates? Yeah. I mean, ultimately I think you're going to find that it's going to come down to one at a time working with the program directors to do this. And you can do that too, but also you can go after the big fish. I mean, you can look at the big compilers out there like clear channel media and they control hundreds and hundreds of stations. I mean, go right to them. Tell them you've got a well-produced clip, a, a little segment that's an easy drop-in. I mean, they're going to want to know, okay, what's in it for them? What's in it for you? They're going to want to have some things clarified, and rightfully so. You can go to, look at what iHeartRadio is doing. Check that out. That's under, well, I think that's, I think that may th- be through Salem Radio Network. iHeartRadio. There's some really cool things happening there where people can just on their iPhones create their own radio stations. So they select the content they want and it creates your own radio station with just that. And a lot of that, frankly, is coming commercial free. I think there's some real exciting things there that we're certainly going to check out. But yeah, you can do that. But then also be prepared to just go station to station. Program directors at radio stations churn like the guys at McDonald's who ask if you want fries with that. I mean, it's a position where uh, it rotates. It's a tough position and those guys come and go quickly. So you'll get a station, then lose them, get a station, then lose them. But over time, if you do that consistently, sure, you can end up with 150 stations that are running your little segment. So if you've got a way to, to monetize that and have it make sense, sounds like a great thing that you're doing. And, and personally, yeah, I, I like that kind of plan. I used to do a segment, a three minute segment called strategies for success on several stations. And I just kind of ran out of steam in doing it. It was really a good model and I should have continued and often think about doing things like that again. But uh, we've got some pretty exciting things that are happening, even in terms of replay of the podcast. Some of you are listening to this on terrestrial radio. As I speak, listening to this on radio rather than through iTunes or Stitcher or one of the podcast links. So we've got some pretty cool things that are happening and we welcome that with the 48 minutes. It turned out to be a pretty good format in that most hours on commercial radio have 12 minutes of news and commercials. So with the 12 minutes plus 48, guess what? That's 60 minutes. So it's an easy drop in for stations to pick up this podcast, put it in as good programming. They can sell ads around it. They don't pay me for that. I don't pay them. They get good programming so they can sell ads around that, and it works out to be a pretty cool thing. You can certainly do something similar to that. Thanks for the question. Well, again, Dan Meller here. This is the 48 Days Online Radio Show, and the questions you're listening to here come from real people like you and me, people who submit the questions 
questions that will help us all kind of unpack them, hopefully, as we go to higher levels of success in our jobs, careers, businesses, and life in general. If you got a question, just go to the 48days.com site, click on the podcast link. You'll see a little box pop up there. I'd be happy to consider that for an upcoming show. Charlie from Florida says, I've been in a tough job for six and a half years. The last 18 months have been bad beyond words. I kept hoping I could turn things around. I now realize I should have left a long time ago. I'm working through 48 days to the work you love right now. But I found I have more self-doubt than confidence. My health is being affected. My wife says I'm turning into a wrath. That's from the Lord of the Rings. W-R-A-I-T-H. Wraith. That's what it is. A wraith. How do you get your swagger back? And incidentally, a wraith is, is um, golly, as I recall, that's like a ghost or just a spirit. So in this case, it'd be kind of like a shell of a man. I'm not a, a Lord of the Rings watcher, but I know the word. So if your wife says you're turning into a, a ghost or just a spirit who kind of floats in and out, that's not a good thing. <laughs> well, Charlie says, how do you get your swagger back and confidence up enough to fulfill your dream? while working at a place that drains you. My wife has suggested resigning without a new job, but I'm afraid to do that. Fear is a big part of my life right now. Well, there are two things that keep us from moving forward, Charlie, and they are tradition and fear. Those are about the only two things. So fear is keeping you from doing anything right now. You got to get past that. But the way you get through fear, now there's a lot of old cliches like don't be a Clement Stone used to say, do what you fear and fear disappears. So, you, you know, if you're afraid of heights, you know, go up the Statue of Liberty to the top and lean over the railing. Well, <laughs> I'm not proposing that you do anything like that. But the way that I work through fear is to create a plan of action, create a plan. You know, fear implies that there's a lot of risk involved. Well, there's risk involved if you have no control. So if you just quit your job with no, with no plan, yeah, that'd put the fear of God in me and it ought to in you. So I wouldn't suggest that, but before you burn any bridges, create a plan. What would it look like if you moved into an ideal life? I had a client yesterday and I kept asking him that. I said, what would an ideal day be like for you three years from now? You just turned 40 years old. What would an ideal day look like? He had to struggle with that a little bit, but as that became clear, all of a sudden, then the options for what we could do to bring that into reality became clear as well. If you can't visualize a perfect day three years from now, you're really going to be stuck right there. You ought to be able, though, to start getting a glimpse of that. People often comment on my work area. As you probably know, I work out of a converted barn on the backside of our property, we have guest quarters back here. We do live events here, but for the most part, it's just empty. It's me back here in my office, all by myself back here in a cow pasture, just outside of Franklin, Tennessee. I love the environment, love the setting. I spoil the birds and turkeys outside. I feed them every day and they're always there to watch. But then I got a little waterfall just outside my um, door. The deer come up and drink there along with a lot of other wildlife. I love the environment and people say, how in the world did you ever you know, create the kind of work life that you have. Well, first thing was I was able to visualize it. I was able to see it a long time before it actually came into being. And it took some time. But at first I got very clear on what it would look like. I was really clear. I mean, you can walk into my office and it's exactly what I saw in my mind five years before it ever existed. So you've got to be able to go there and hopefully you can go there to where you can at least 
imagine, dream, visualize what it would be like, what would be a perfect day. Then start working backwards from there, all right? What are the deposits that you need to start making today toward that becoming a reality? Jeremy says, now this, this is one of those, this is one of those zingers you guys throw at me. Jeremy says, I'm currently working through the 48 days book and I'm working on updating my resume. I'm set to graduate seminary with a master's in theology next year. And I want to include this education on my resume. How can I use this degree if I apply for secular jobs? Do you have any advice on how I can best market this master's? I was thinking I could highlight my writing skills with it, but I don't want to come across as potentially a preachy person. Any advice you can provide would be helpful. Wow. Now, let's just break this down a little bit. So you're getting a master's in theology. Yeah, I mean, first question is, you know, why are you doing that? I mean, what is your reasoning for doing that? If you don't want to have a traditional application of that, which would be like in a church position or teaching somewhere, then I assume you did it just for the personal growth and learning that comes as a part of that. And if that's true, do you really even need to put it on your resume? Now, I work with a lot of people who have degrees that we don't put on their resume. Keep in mind, a resume is a sales tool for taking you in the direction you want to go. It's not deceptive or misrepresentation to leave off degrees. I mean, I've worked with a lot of dentists who have a DDS behind their their name and decide they don't want to spend the rest of their life with their hands in people's stinky mouths all day. We remove the DDS. We draw on other expertise that they have to redirect their career into things that are more fitting, fulfilling, and profitable. So the first question is, why did you get a master's in theology if you don't want to go into something that would be an application of that? Aside from that, if you want to somehow just show that you're an educated intellectual, then hopefully you can list just a master of arts from Now, if you're in seminary, it may be a little hard to do. I'm not sure if you're in a seminary connected with the university, but you could, if you are going to Vanderbilt, as an example here, you can just put a Master of Arts from Vanderbilt, Nashville, Tennessee, 2012. Boom. End of story. You don't have to list the area of specialty, and I would encourage you to try to frame it in that way. If it is a seminary only that you're going to, and just the name of the university is going to give away the fact that you got a seminary degree, then you need to be prepared to decide, do you want to be seen as a a preachy person or as a person who is looking for a job when their real desire was to go into the ministry, traditional ministry in some way, which is highly likely. I mean, Frederick Beckner, the theologian says the worst thing he ever did was to become ordained. He said, then it tainted Everything that he said or spoke after that time, people viewed him in a different light because he was an ordained minister. He wished that he had never done that. So people would just see him as an intellectual guy, a thinker rather than an ordained pastor preacher. However, that was framed. So if you can just list it as a master's do that. But if if you can't camouflage the fact that it was a seminary and you don't want that to taint your resume, just leave it off. Don't have that on there. I mean, keep in mind a resume is nothing but a tool to whet somebody's appetite. I mean, that's not the means by which any intelligent company makes a decision about hiring somebody. All it does is whet their appetite so they want to see you and talk to you. In the personal conversation and interview, then you can talk about anything that you want to. If that comes up, 
that's where you can sell yourself. And I don't think that it would have to include having a master's in theology to get an appropriate position in what you're describing. All right. Andy says, Hey Dan, I love what you do. I'm a freelance illustrator with a newfound passion for blogging. The theme of my blog is finding creative direction. And I write to young creatives looking for their creative path. I'm an illustrator who works with clients such as Sony converse and Google but I'm also serious about my Christian faith. I don't want to blog to a Christian market or alienate my diverse audience. My problem is that I can't figure out if I feel called to incorporate more faith-based words and ideas in my blog, or if I have put the burden on myself, what should I do? Well, don't, don't make it so complicated, Andy. I mean, you don't have to go out here waving a red flag just because you happen to be a Christian. I mean, speak truth, speak hope, encouragement. Whatever. If you're working with young creatives, Help them develop their creativity. Tap into that. Find their passion. Find their wisdom. And you can do all that without raving a flag that you're you're a Christian. Now, is it going to come through ultimately? Yeah, usually our worldview comes through. But in in my writing, I mean, I, I have a very small percentage of my book sales that are through Christian channels, through Lifeway or Family Christian Bookstore. I mean, most of the book sales of mine are through Amazon. Books a Million, Barnes & Noble, traditional outlets like that, where I'm not identified as just you know in the Christian arena. And as a matter of fact, it was kind of a funny conversation with Thomas Nelson, just recently purchased, or, or, or you know, they, they were purchased by HarperCollins, so they're part of a major conglomerate at this point. But uh, they, my editor, or my uh, publisher at Thomas Nelson, said there was some concern at Thomas Nelson if my book would be Christian enough for their market. And I laughed and I said, hey, I'll throw some things in there to make sure we got that covered. But, you know, I, I don't struggle over that. I just write the things that are energizing to me and encouraging to others. I want to engage with people in a broad variety of ways out there, a diverse audience like you're talking about. And I don't want to just segment things down so I'm only preaching to the choir, so to speak. Sounds like you're in a position to do that as well. Um, let me grab one more here, right? Um, okay. This says most financial planners. Well, let me do, let me start with this. Okay. Dan, thanks for your great insight. I have an interesting question about my next career step. I am a CPA in corporate accounting. I would love to move into something where I can better help individuals with their finances, but I don't think I want to be doing taxes. Financial planning sounds like a great option, but I don't think I would ever personally use a financial planner. This is partly because I'm financially literate as a CPA, but also believe I everyone could handle their own basic finances on their own with a little education, allowing them to save the money that would otherwise be spent on a financial planner. Should the fact that I would never use a financial planner keep me from being a financial planner? I would love your thoughts. Ryan from California. Yes, your lack of belief in the real value of a financial planner makes that a poor choice for you. Don't try to talk yourself into doing something well that you don't really believe in. So just don't do that. Now, most financial planners make their money not as a fee for service, but by selling insurance and investments. So you have to be more of a salesman than an accountant. And that doesn't sound like that's what you want to do. Here's what I would suggest. If you want to maximize your income, if you want to keep your income up there with what you're likely to be getting now as a CPA in a corporation, I would suggest continuing in a corporate CPA position. 
Now, if you want to do a job search to find another more fulfilling position, hey, that's cool. You know, do that. But with that in place, then just follow your heart in wanting to help individuals by volunteering your services, maybe four or five hours a week through a respected community agency or a church. Don't try to turn that line of service into duplicating your current CPA income. You'll end up frustrated in doing that. Well, there we go. Taking care of business. Hey, thanks for being with us. I love this part of my week where I have the opportunity to go through your questions, talk through these things together. It helps me. I mean, it's one of the highlights of my week to dig in here and figure out what I would do in these situations. I continue to massage my own business, have opportunity to engage with people like you all through the week. So thanks for being part. Jump on the 48days.net community. Get in that Wisdom Meets Passion group we got coming up. Hey, and congratulations on being part of a group who is continuing to find or create work that is meaningful, productive, and profitable.